Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1973 film Paper Moon. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? Good, Sam. Very happy to be inside on a really cold morning. Yeah, yeah. It is a it is a frigid one out there. Um, let's just start start off. So I'd never seen this movie before. Um, what what is your history with this film? Well, um, I'm going to answer that kind of backwards by saying that my, my, actually my history is with the television show that followed on the film. The film came out in 73. Uh, I did not see it at the time. And then in 74, there was a TV show with Jodie Foster uh, in the Addie Prey role. Uh, that's when I got a crush on Jodie Foster. Um, and then I have a history with Bogdanovich, but I actually don't have much of a history with this film. It was... Um, it was Bogdanovich's recent death, as I mentioned, that kind of sent me back to uh, to his catalog, and uh, I decided to do Paper Moon because it's been a hole in my uh, in my Bogdanovich um, uh, bibliography. So, is this a movie a movie you hadn't seen? Right, I had not seen it until last I didn't year. realize that. Yeah, oh wow! Yeah. <clears throat> well, I have a little history with Peter Bogdanovich, but not as a filmmaker. I mean, I'm aware of him as a filmmaker. I've I've never seen Last Picture Show or any of those things. Mm. But when I was growing up um, in the late 80s, uh, we were a CBS This Morning family. That was just what was on in the morning when we would get up. And f- at least for a while in the late 80s, he did, I think, uh, he did m- not movie reviews, but like reviewed things that were coming out on video mm. to kind of like do recommendations for that. So he was this presence for a while on TV that I knew. And it's like, wow, this guy seems to like, I didn't, I didn't, ha- he wasn't rooted in anything, but it was a name that stood out to me. And I always was interested in what this guy had to say. And then I, years later, I heard that name again in reference to the last picture show. And I realized I didn't know this guy was a filmmaker too. And so, so, so my history with Peter Bogdanovich is mostly recommending movies on CBS this morning in the late eighties. Yeah. He, he really had a remarkable career. Um, he kind of started out just as a, as a student of film. Um, I mean, he started interviewing people like Hitchcock and, and Orson Welles when he was in his twenties. So he kind of gave himself a film education. I don't think he even graduated from high school, if I remember correctly. So he kind of gave himself a film education, and then he started making making films. Uh, so he was writing about films, he was making films, and he was also trained as an actor. He was actually trained by Stella Adler as an actor. So other people may know him in our in our listening audience as uh, the, the psychiatrist in The Sopranos. Uh, one of his uh, late acting roles. So he really was kind of a, a triple threat in uh, in all all of those different areas. So uh, if as we think about him as a filmmaker, um, again, me knowing really nothing about his films, how indicative is Paper Moon uh, uh, as a Peter Bogdanovich film? Is it is it does it stand out as very different, or is it sort of in a piece with the other things that he's done? Well, you know, that's a really good question, Sam. And, you know, I, I don't I don't know, you know, Bogdanovich is one of those filmmakers where it's hard to say what the Bogdanovich style was because so much of what Bogdanovich did, especially early in his career, were direct homages to classic filmmakers. So, um, 
Paper Moon, for example, is seen as kind of an homage to a, to a John Ford uh, movie of the 1930s. And so it's kind of very deliberately uh, has that deliberate style. Uh, as I mentioned briefly last week, What's Up, Doc? is kind of his effort to remake a um, screwball comedy along the lines of Bring Up Baby. Uh, Last Picture Show is, again, is uh, kind of a genre noir film in a way. It's one of those movies that has a large cast of characters, each of whom is kind of looked at sympathetically. So those who cr criticize Bogdanovich see him as kind of, a, um, uh, kind of an imitator uh, of, of classic film. And I think it's more that he's... Uh, he's learning from those filmmakers and he's kind of making their style sort of his own. So those three films, Last Picture Show, Paper Moon, What's Up Doc, those are kind of, those are his earliest and also in many respects, his kind of his, his, his best films. Uh, does he fit in with the sort of new Hollywood of the seventies or is he sort of a, in a different place there? I, I actually don't, I really don't know. Yeah, no, he, yeah, that's a good question. He, yeah, he's definitely fits in with the new Hollywood of the seventies and other people like, uh, Coppola, uh, Scorsese, um, Bob Raffle, Raffleson, um, the, those, those folks sort of fit in with the, the, what's called the new Hollywood or sometimes called the American new wave. And one similarity that those three have Coppola, Scorsese, and Bogdanovich is they all got their start in one way or another, or were supported by Roger Corman, who's kind of this, Corman's kind of this legendary independent filmmaker who was known for making these, these films very, very quickly, very cheaply, and often very successfully. Um, one of the marks that, um, Carmen made was he made what's considered the first biker film called The Wild Angels with Peter Fonda and Nancy Sinatra. But he had a lot of a lot of uh, actors and who went on to become really big stars in Hollywood. Kind of started in Corman films. Uh, Jack Nicholson was in in uh, an early uh, Corman Corman film. Um, Dennis Hopper, Bruce Dern, Sylvester Stallone, Diane Ladd, even William Shatner. Uh, and then in addition to supporting people like Coppola, Scorsese, and Bogdanovich, he also kind of mentored John Sayles and Ron Howard, Jonathan Demme, James Cameron, kind of a whole who's who of uh, those film filmmakers that came to prominence in the 60s and 70s. I think the famous Corman line is, if you make a great movie for me, you'll never have to make a movie for me again, is is sort of the idea like you you come work for me, you do something good, and then people will take notice, and then you can go on and do your and, and, and do your thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, one of the big th things as I was reading about this and, and sort of think and thinking about Bogdanovich is his relationship to somebody we've talked a lot about in this podcast, Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. um, and Orson Welles has there, there's there's sort of two things uh, in particular that get pointed to with uh, with him uh, working with Orson Welles or talking to Orson Welles about this. Um, and one has to do with the title. And this is this is, I think, just a great story. So do you want to tell the title story? Yeah, you know, he, the, 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 the title of the, the novel on which the film is based is Addie Prey, the, you know, the, the main character. And he didn't like that title. And so he, he's, he's searching for a title and he's listening to music. And then one, one of the things I would say about this film is it has a wonderful soundtrack. Great. So he's listening to Paper Moon and he's thinking, man, that would be a really good title. Um, so he, he calls Orson Welles. Welles is in Rome at the time. And so he's talking about, you know, he's thinking about this title, Paper Moon. And Wells says, that's a great title. I says, that's such a great title. He's just released the title and forget about the movie. Um, 
But the other thing that came about is, is it's, it's the reason why in the film you have the shot of um, Tatum O'Neill sitting in the half moon uh, because he wanted, uh, he wanted the studio to allow him to use that title. And so it's like, well, I got this picture of her sitting on the moon, so it's got to be paper moon. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if we think about that title, I'm actually, um, it was before I had read that story, it was one of the things that jumped out at me. It's like, why is this movie called Paper Moon? What does that mean? Um, so I went and read the lyrics to the song. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but do you have thoughts about sort of like, because uh, it is a great title. I mean, Wells is 100% right. Like just that sound, it just sounds like that's going to be an interesting movie, right? Even if you don't know what it means, uh, what what does Paper Moon mean to you? Well, I mean, the, you know, the, the song is kind of about a successful con job, right? It's like, it's only a paper moon sailing over a cardboard sky, but it would be real if you believe in me. And so to me, it's a lot about that relationship between, uh, between Addie and Mose and this whole question of, is he her father or not? Uh, and so I think that song is kind of a perfect commentary on reality being what it appears to be or what you want it to be or what you believe it to be. Absolutely. The other, the other thing that Wells, um, had told him was about how, about how to shoot this. He said to shoot it in black and white with a, um, with a red filter. To, Cause he says that would really, I think, bring out the contrast a little bit more would make, make things pop a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I thought a lot of, I don't know a lot about filters and things like that, but I know a little, and like, that just made me think a lot. Cause I don't think about filters on black and white movies, mm -hmm. but the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, well, that actually makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, you, you know, cause at first you hear that and think, oh, it's going to be tinted red. And it's like, no, it's a black and white movie, right. but filtering the, the red, uh, the red lights that, 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 that then affects what are the things that come through and don't. And, and I bring that up only to say, I mean, one of the things we're going to get to is this is a fantastically gorgeous movie to look at. Mm -hmm. um, this, mm -hmm. uh, this is a, a piece of visual art, even if you ignore the story and the acting and the music and everything else in it like this. Uh, this so actually I'm curious, um, is that a hallmark of Bogdanovich sort of like, like, a like as a sort of a, as a visual stylist? Cause I feel like this is such a, an interesting movie to look at. Yeah. That, I think, I think it is Sam. And in part it's because of the, um, of the fact that he worked with uh, the cinematographers, Laszlo Kovacs and Kovacs shot, I think six of, of Bogdanovich's films. And so I think a lot of it is about the collaboration between Kovacs and, and Bogdanovich. And in some ways, I mean, Bogdanovich knew all about the collaboration between Wells and Greg Holland. And so in a sense, I think his relationship with Kovacs was kind of, was kind of modeled on that. So, yeah, you had the same kind of a last picture show has the same kind of beautiful black and white. Um, What's Up Doc is in color, but again, it's it's a really interesting kind of color palette. So, yeah, I think Bogdanovich paid a lot of attention to uh, to the cinematography. Well, while we're talking about visuals, let's just jump ahead and talk about this as a visual movie. And then I want to come back to a couple other things. Um, one of the first things that hits you after the opening credits, which I'll, which I'll come back to, is uh, this shot that is, uh, I believe it starts in Kansas, right? Yes. And they moved. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and it is, it is this perfectly flat landscape with this huge sky and perfectly flat land and these tiny figures at, in this cemetery, you know? Mm -hmm. I, um, and, and so like, it made me think of, it made me think of Westerns. Um, yes. It made me, you know, kind of, and especially like, like the big, big sky, small, small figures across the big sky. Um, it made me think of a couple shots in the Cohen's true grit where they, 
I mean, I think that that's a fairly common shot in Westerns. Um, it also made me think about um, one of my favorite teachers when I was here at Bethel, uh, Kathy Nevins, uh, grew up in Kansas. And I remember her talking about being in Kansas and how flat Kansas is and how claustrophobic it felt to go anywhere else where the mm -hmm. sky didn't seem to reach to eternity. Um, and, and I feel like just in that opening shot and, and the, the shots at that funeral, you get this a particular sense of place and a particular sense of um, kind of, uh, I guess, a place that 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 most of us don't live. Most of us don't live in a in a even you know don't don't live in a place where you can just sort of see forever. And it also seems to speak to like the, you know, you could also view it as a kind of just emptiness too. That there is nothing there. So that shot struck me really powerfully to start with. Yeah, I have. I, it, it's been hard for me to develop appreciation of those kinds of open spaces. I come from the the East Coast, and uh, you don't get those kinds of those kind of vistas. And it takes a while to develop an, an appreciation for the beauty of that. The other thing I would say about that opening shot is, uh, as I said, the film is in a way an homage to the John Ford road comedies of the '30s, but this is also the John Ford Western landscape. Uh, that 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 opening shot is very kind of very Fordian, as you said, in that depiction of the small human figure against the vast landscape. The other thing I thought of, and this this is this is more than just that shot, but it made me think about um, uh, kind of abstract landscapes that you see in in modernist art in like early twentieth mm. century art, um, and. And, and this kind of goes throughout uh, just the, the way it shot it, it. It made me think of of two painters in particular. And these folks tend to do maybe a little bit more urban landscapes, but they also do have more. Uh, they also do have landscapes where they're going out into the country a little bit more. But it made me think of Charles Sheeler and Edward Hopper a little bit. Um, and if you do just a basic Google search on them and start to kind of look at some of their paintings, I think you can see what I'm talking about. Like it is. Yeah. It, um, in a weird way, this makes me think about painting because uh, because it's in black and white too. You get this strong sense of like planes of color or shades of of black, white, and gray. Um, pretty flat planes laid, and then that sometimes broken up by uh, a figure, broken up by a building, broken up by something in the landscape. Um, it it's th those are uh, uh, Sheeler and, and Hopper are two painters that I really love, and like these. This jumped out at me as like, oh, this feels like these painters, which who are painters of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, which is sort of of the era too. No, yeah, the minute you said that, Sam Hopper came right into my mind as well. I absolutely agree. The, the other thing I think is important to say at this point is that um, I, I think that the conversation about how this film is shot helps remind us that photography and cinematography is not straight realism. And it, it's, it's easy, of course, to think that when something's in black and white, because we all see the world in color. But that's why I, I like what you said earlier, you mentioned the red filter, because even black and white is not straight black and white. There are things being done to manipulate the image so that what you're seeing is not exactly what you would see if the world was monochrome. You're seeing a very, you're seeing a, a very stylistically inflected view of the world. And so I think that's another element of the artistry of filmmaking that people may be unaware of. You're not just setting up a camera and filming things the way they are. You are doing things to them. Uh, you're using a different tool than a painter does, but you're still filtering things through a particular medium, uh, which requires a lot of skill. And I'm glad you brought up photography as well, because I think another thing that I'm, I'm just, I can only assume um, someone like Bogdanovich is thinking about and looking at 
is old uh, WPA photographs from the Great Depression. There are definitely moments where you get Dorothea Lang or Gordon Parks or Ben Sean photos like, oh, I, I, I've, I've seen this image before. Even the way he shoots um, Addie and Addie's kind of expressionless face is like, oh, these, this feels like, like WPA photography of people trying to um, you know go out and catalog the Depression. So I feel like that is also uh, an potentially an artistic influence on the visuals here. Especially that scene when they when they're at the house that has the poor woman with all yes. the children, the way they're all crowded around the doorway. That that's very that's very much a WPA moment. Yes. Um, other visual things, uh, and and you mentioned the the effects of Wells and Tallinn um, on this, uh, the use of deep focus. Yes. Um, and and. Uh, if, if people are curious, there's a, a couple shots in particular where, where this is really highlighted, although it's in a lot of, they use it a lot in this movie, but two places where it jumped out at me. Um, many of the shots where you see Moe's selling Bibles, right? You'll get a, uh, what is a, seems like a pretty tight shot of him as if you're standing in the doorway looking at him. But if you pay attention, you get, you're getting as crisp of a shot of Maddie in the background, or excuse me, Addie in the background. And you're seeing Addie, um, react to what's going on and her move move while staying in focus into into the uh, into the foreground like that's that's a really beautiful use of it um, and my favorite shot where they're using this um, and this this actually pulls into another thing I think happening in this movie is I think it's the first house that they go to it starts on a shot looking up the street again it's it's sort of a a hopper esque um, image and you see the car pull pull uh, come forward towards you and then pull up and it's all one unbroken shot and then you get the shot of them in the car so you're getting you're in the car in the background to an ex in drives into an extreme close-up and then you see this conversation in the car and then you see him leave the car and go to the house and i believe that's all one unbroken shot where mm -hmm. the focus is um is in the foreground, the middle ground, and the background as we move through. That's a master. That is such a hard shot to pull off, and it's just so beautifully done. My uh, my favorite deep focus moment is uh, is in the cafe scene early on when they're uh, <laughs> he keeps selling their eater Coney Island. Um, so, and actually, with just about that, there's a couple of things that's interesting about that shot. Not only the deep focus, so you can kind of see the waitress and the other patrons in the background kind of watching this drama. But Laszlo Kovacs uh, told um, Bogdanovich he wanted to shoot it at a particular low angle, which is a very Wellesian thing to do, to get this sense of kind of a standoff between the two characters. The other thing you get out of that shot is, uh, in the background, is the movie theater showing Steamboat Round the Bend, which is a 1935 John Ford film. Uh, and that film features a con man who enters his steamboat in a winner-take-all race, con man played by, um, uh, by, Will, by Will Rogers. Um, so, it, which also helps us to, to see that the film kind of straddles 35, 36, because the film came out in 35, but then the hotel register has 36. And the second car that um, Moe's drives is a, 30, is a 36. So we're kind of in that in that area. Most people say, yeah, the film's probably set in '36, and it took a while for that film to get to this uh, Kansas uh, small small town. Well, and even that speaks to uh, I think Polly Platt did the production design for yeah. this. And yeah. like, uh, if you go out, even onto the Wikipedia page, there is a huge section about all of the little details like that, like the knee high soda and what yeah. and what is that and what what became of that company and all of these things. Like, like it is. Uh, 
uh, a very carefully designed movie in that way in terms of the the things that you that 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 you see and how they even make it a point that you're seeing those specifics so he mentions the knee high but when you look at the the one of the shots in that restaurant you see that bottle is looks like a looks like a skyscraper in the shot and you see the knee high you know logo on logo on that so i i think the the production design is really great here last visual thing oh go ahead yeah, three feathers whiskey as well. Yes, that's, a, that's an actual whiskey. Yeah. Um, last visual thing that that I thought about, and this this one, um, part part of this feels like a stretch, but 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 I'll bring this up. Um, is is the use of very long shots, and I talked about this with the car pulling up, and that it does it without a cut. You're seeing this action, you're seeing this conversation, and you're seeing the next conversation start. Um, uh, so, so that that's another thing that um, mm-hmm. that stood out to me uh, in terms of the the visuals. Um, one of the scenes that that I I thought about, um, and this is again, I don't know anything about Bogdanovich, so this may or may not be a a reference. It may just be something that is a coincidence that I thought about these things. But there's something about the scene when they're in one of the early hotel rooms. It's the first time we see Addie smoke. Yes. Um, and you see, and, and Moses on the floor and they're having this conversation and listening to the radio and she's smoking and he goes up to her and shuts off. the light. It reminds me of a, a short version of like the scene from breathless where they're in the, uh, the hotel together. And then, so, and then at the end of the movie, when Mose is running through St. Joe's being chased, that also mm-hmm. looks a lot like breath. I mean, even the way he's dressed, the way he's running the well, he'll like, like, and actually, it reminded me that I don't know if there's any connection there, but I did feel like, oh, this, I feel like you could put those side by side and there's moments where it's like, they, it, we have a, a very similar image, obviously a very different setting kind of yeah. thing. But I, I was well, wondering yeah. about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bogdanovich did focus more on American films, but obviously he was well aware of the, of the French New Wave. And in a sense, the, the American New Wave is basically auteurism coming to the U.S., um, you know, so people like that we mentioned earlier, people like Coppola, Scorsese, uh, you know, and Bogdanovich, they're, they're all considered auteurs. So I, I actually love that connection, Sam. I don't think that's far-fetched at all, I, 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 especially the chase scene. I hadn't thought about that, but I think the chase scene is very breathless. Yeah, and and when I thought about Bogdanovich as somebody who starts off studying film and writing about film and becomes a filmmaker, well, that's Godard's arc as well, right? Yes, so, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so I want to go. I want to go back to the very opening of this movie because because yes. uh, the uh, the first thing that I noticed when 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 this starts up, well, the first thing I noticed is the Paramount logo in black and white, um, <laughs> which is like an it's just like a, an indicator of what we're going to see. Um, but then we get the credit sequence and we get this amazing Art Deco font. Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't usually talk about typefaces in this yeah, yeah. on this podcast, but um, it's such an intentional choice that I did a little bit of reading to try to f- learn about the font or learn about that choice, and all I could find was kind of a a, a Reddit thread where people were debating the use of that choice and whether it was a good mm. use or not. Um, but the, a point that somebody made on Reddit, which was interesting, was like because somebody's saying, "Well, it's really out of place to have this like 1920s font in this Great Depression era," but somebody mm. pointed out, "Well," This movie is there's so much about the 20s as well. Like the a lot of the music comes from the 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, the figure of Addie's mom is definitely a 20s flapper figure, yep. right? It's like so the the so the font is another version of like this the uh, the ghost of the Roaring 20s now 
plopped into the thirties into the depression. So I, I, that, that font was such a choice. It was, it, it has to be mentioned. Oh, I, no, I, I think that's a great point, Sam. I think that the distinctiveness of this film is as much, it's, it's the, the title and the image of the moon, but you're right. It's also the font. The minute that was up, um, it has a, it's, it, you're right. It takes you right back to that era and it seems entirely appropriate. Um, and then the other thing that that jumps out from that opening scene is the music. So, uh, and you start and and you you realize I always love movies where I'm where I start watching it and I think, oh, there's no score to this. I mean, there there is a lot of for a movie with a lot of music in it. There's no non diegetic score that everything you hear is something that is you know being played on the radio and what's interesting about it is not just being played on the radio but there's a lot of interaction with the radio so it's it's that's not just a way to sneak in music that but there is that that seems like a character like definitely like a character in the um in the film so the movie starts with three people singing a hymn at a funeral um but then we see again we see the radio being turned on being turned off we see that addy is somebody who's uh that's one of her prized possessions. She brings that radio. That's one of the, I think, two things, two, one of the couple things she brings with her. Um, she very much likes to sit and listen to Jack Benny. And that's one of the things <laughs> she snaps and is like, we're not going to listen to the rest of Jack Benny or Fibber McGee. Like, like, like she's, she's definitely into that. One of my favorites is moments is when she starts singing in the car uh-huh. after kind of after her first big con that she pulls uh, and she sings and she's singing, uh, keep your sunny side up. And there's not, it's not, there's the lyrics aren't even in that part of the song on the radio. It's just her singing. Um, I, I just, I, I found the music really interesting. And then the fact that that, the fact that there's no score allows for silence to also be a really kind of powerful thing that there's lots of moments where there isn't. Well, at, at the risk of beating a dead horse, Sam, I, I want to point out that opening with a hymn or having a hymn at the graveside happens in so many John Ford films. Um, and it's almost always Shall We Gather at the River. Uh, they almost always sing Shall We Gather at the River. So I think, again, you've got uh, you've got Bogdanovich, you know, paying this homage to, to, to Ford. Uh, the other thing that I've seen, it, it's probably about five minutes. The narrative economy is so tight within five minutes you've got the whole story laid out you've got the death of Addie's mother you have the characterization of Mose because he enters the scene and the first thing he does is he picks up the flowers off the off the grave as though he's brought the flowers and then you have Mose um going getting conned by the picture going from I have nothing to do with this child to actually having Addie uh now be his charge and 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 I and I even love the 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 humor that you get. It's one of the great ones when when Mo realizes that you know the child is now his, and the preacher says, uh, "God works in mysterious ways." And Moses' response is, "Don't he now?" Which 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 the the the, the tone of that is perfect, right? Because it's both affirmative and it's cynical and it's humorous. And so I I I think this movie is one of those movies that grabs you. And I think, you know, if after those first five minutes you're not in, then, then you're not in. But I just think it's it's incredible how quickly and economically Bogdanovich lays out the, the scenario and then gets things rolling. Well, what I love about that, too, is so I watched this the other day and then I, I watched the most of it again last night. And as I watched that opening scene a second time. I was thinking, are they conning him or is he conning them? Is because because we know he reads obituaries. We know that that that's part of his con, right? So it's like, 
I, I was wondering, does he see her as, well, if I can get them to have me take her, then I can get that $200 and get on my way. Like I, and, and what's, what's great about the story as well is it doesn't tell you like, you don't, you don't know. I don't know whether that was his plan or not, but, mm -hmm. it, but he, he's a good enough con man to roll with it and be like, okay, well, if this is what I'm going to have, how can I cash in on this? Um, so I, I actually really like that. Cause, cause I wonder like, well, why is he at the funeral? Is he there? Is he really there to pay his respects or is this another obituary he's read where he sees an opportunity? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and what, what's also great about this movie is, um, it's very simple in terms of its story. Like I, I, I have to say, I love con man stories. I love, um, heist movies i love a movie like the sting right where there's like mm -hmm. a big setup what i love about this though is there's all these small cons that they do but there's never a it all builds up to the big con that we're gonna you know we're gonna like i mean the, the biggest thing is the bootlegger one but even that it's not like they intricately plan that they see an opportunity and they take it um mm -hmm. so the whole time you have this fear if you've seen enough con man movies, you have this fear of the long con of like, okay, is there, is there going to be a turn at some point where you realize he had this other bigger plan all along or that they're being conned the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love that it lives in that tension. And then ultimately that isn't it. It, it is just this story about these people, well, about these two people, but then you encounter other, other people who are, running their own cons or doing their own things to try to make their way through the depression. So Trixie, she's, she's running a con kind of on, on, mm -hmm. um, on Moe's. Uh, but at the same, at the same time, it's like, but maybe they also like it. Like it's, it's hard to know, you know, what are you supposed to think of, but, but it's people trying to survive, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and a con is a way to, a con is a way to survive. And I love the way we see Addie introduced into this world. Um, he doesn't—he doesn't initially see her as a an asset, right? At first, he's like, "Please hide. People don't like children." And then after after you know after she helps him out with the one, it becomes, "Oh yeah, we should work together." And we start to realize she's actually. Uh, what's interesting? Okay, maybe this is the way to think about it. Is this is about people with two different sets of con ethics mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right because because yep. mose has the idea that eight dollars that's that's what a bible yeah. is and like it you don't but but so so he's like a flat tax con person it's like regardless of how poor that person is or rich that person is mm -hmm. eight dollars and addy is more is more the you know rob from the rich steal from the poor so she's she's trying to size the person up and say like okay what can we get out of this person and but at the same time She's more likely to look at somebody and say, we need to help this person out. We need to give, you know, so, so when she gives the Bible to the person, um, like you see the frustration on Moe's, but it's like, you're, you're so happy she did that. Likewise, when she gets the $24 that turns into $29, you're like, way to go, Addie. Like you, you're smarter than Moe's here, or at least maybe not smarter. You're, you have a different set of ethics about this. Well, yeah, not, it's not only ethics. I, I, I love the line where he, he says something. I don't know why he says this to her, but he, he, he says something about um, having any scruples. And she says, or he you know, he says something like, I've got scruples. And she says, well, I don't know what they are, but if you have them, they probably belong to somebody else. I'm pretty sure they belong to somebody else. 
Um, and it's interesting is she's the one that keeps talking about Frank, Frank, Frank Roosevelt, right? Uh, as you mentioned earlier, she listens to Jack Benny and she listens to Fibra McGee, but evidently she's been listening to the fireside chats. Uh, and she actually seems to have a better handle on what's going on economically than Moe's does. So yeah, she's able to size up the rich widow. You know, I think we can charge this woman a lot more and she has compassion on the poor widow. Um, so she's, she's much more, um, aware kind of person than, than, than Moses. And so she brings an element to the con that he actually, he actually doesn't, doesn't have. I also love that the cons don't have, like there isn't the moment where it's explained to us. Like you, you just watch it and get it. And you realize the, the brilliance of the, Oh, I'll, let me just give the $1 deposit back as a way to get seven out of the person. <laughs> um, and, 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 and the one, it took me a while, the, the, the one where they turn, five dollars into ten it mm. like i had to sit down and do math on that and be like wait a minute how does that work and then you watch her do it again later or, or the one with the twenty dollar bill yeah it's great because they're just at the moment where he's going to explain it to her and we cut away to the store so we don't get to know what it is and and uh yeah I, it's I love the way that, again, it's economy of storytelling. It's because we're not going to tell you because we're going to show you and you're yeah. trust us. You're going to figure this out as we go. Yeah, I, I did. I did love that because I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is going on with this 20? Did I did I miss something? Uh, and then you watch it unfold and it's just it's great. And then and then later on, you get out. He's saying, you know, oh, Mose, we can go drop some 20s. I mean, she's really yeah. kind of gotten into the spirit of it. <laughs> Um, and then the the backdrop of all of this is also then the depression as well, which is an interesting way to do a depression story where it's not um, where the depression is very is very present without it being um, uh, kind of what the movie's about. Like you wouldn't need to set this movie in the depression, but it's meaningful that it is set in the depression, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I love is uh, is when we get to the end of this movie, um, because as you pointed out, they don't resolve one of the central questions that seems like it should be at the center of the movie. And you feel mm -hmm. like this is going to be, it feels like this is going to be a story about him ultimately admitting that he is her father, right. you know, and that's, that's amplified by the fact that Ryan O'Neill is Tatum O'Neill's father and right. they do in fact look alike. And there, I mean, there is all of that. And then you get to the end and realize, Oh, they never addressed that. But the best part about the ending is when she gets to aunt Billy's house, mm -hmm. it would, in my head, I'm thinking this is going to be awful. And he's going to notice that and say, no, come with me. Instead, she gets there and it seems like paradise. Aunt mm -hmm. Billy seems great. She's mm -hmm. generous. She's mm -hmm. so excited to have her. It looks like a nice house. It looks like she's in a lot better state than she was in Kansas. And you're like, this is actually a great um, outcome for Addie. But you also realize this is not she actually is like Moe's, right? Like, it's like, that's actually, that's actually her people, you know, that, that she, at this point, she, she just is, she is another, another kind of version of Moe's or, or, or she and Moe's are two parts of a whole or something. So you get that ending and it's less about, it's not him rescuing her. It's, it's, it's them finding each other. Or if anything, she's rescuing him, you know, pointing out his truck is going. And it's like, you know, that there is, he's realizing the emptiness he has not because he's lost his daughter, but because he lost his partner. When he looks at that photo. Yeah. I, I, I just think I love the way that they resolve that without resolving mm -hmm. it. 
Yeah, and I and I and I think it gets set up a little bit by the previous action where uh, he was going to set up that con with the guy with the silver mine, and they were going to be set up for life. And so it's kind of foreshadowed that they're both kind of expecting to spend uh, a, a lot of a lot of time together. Uh, and I also agree. I love the way that you know the photograph of her on the paper moon. You know, where's your pa? Well, he's not there to take the photograph with her, and that kind of gets that kind of comes full circle. The other thing that comes full circle is um, when he arrives at the beginning of the film, when he arrives at the funeral, the, the car is backfiring badly. And the backfiring is also characteristic of the truck that, that, that he picks up. By the way, by wrestling a very young Randy Quaid, uh, <laughs> in, in, in that scene. I didn't. I didn't check to see how early in Quaid's filmography that is, but it's got to be a pretty early film. Uh, anyway, so to me, that 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 truck, which is worse than the car he started with, is sort of part of a. It's kind of a circular structure. You know, so whereas he takes her away from the funeral at the beginning, he takes her away from the nice house at the end. So there's kind of two opportunities for him to pick her up. Uh, and in both cases, uh, she kind of takes the initiative, either the preacher on her behalf or just doing it, her, doing herself. But Donovan said they, they didn't really know what the ending was going to be. Um, he, uh, he diverged a lot from the novel. The novel goes in a very different direction to, at, at the end. Uh, and so they kind of uh, came up with the ending towards the, uh, towards the end of shooting. What I like about it is because of the structure of the movie and the story, the idea that that at the end they have this car which is worse than the one they started with. They have less. I mean, they've basically lost most of their money, right? It's like, but it's not depressing because we already know these are unbelievably resourceful people who will turn whatever they have into like that. Their fortunes are going to rise and fall, but it's not about that, you know, like. Uh, I, I love that at one point I feel like they're down to their last $10 and at one point they have almost a thousand dollars, you know, and yes. it's like, and, and it, and it doesn't, ch their life doesn't materially change in either of those, in either of those circumstances. So I, you don't have to feel like, I don't feel worried about them. It's like, right. they're going to, they're going to, they're, they're people who are survivors. Well, actually, so, I, 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 I don't, even, I don't worry about him because he's got Addy. I feel right. like, like Addy is really his security. So. Well, there's a great scene when they're in the, uh, the sheriff's uh, station and, um, there's all this concern about where the money is. And he's going through the box and he looks over at her. And yes. She's just kind of scratching her head and pointing up and you see Ben Franklin's face and you realize, Oh, she's thought through this. She, you know, like she's, she's been preparing this whole time. Like I, I, I love her as a character. Yeah. Um, so to talk briefly about, uh, about performances here, I mean, it's important. You can't talk about paper moon without saying Tatum O'Neill wins an Oscar, the youngest person to win a competitive Oscar. Um, I think she was 10 years old by the time she wins that, uh, you have Ryan O'Neill who I don't have a lot of history with other than I think Barry Lyndon. He's, mm. he's he, yeah. Um, uh, but I, I found, I, I found him great in this movie. I really liked him. And then you have, uh, one last great con, which is Madeline Kahn. She's amazing. Um, the interesting thing is both Madeline Kahn and Tatum O'Neill were both nominated for supporting actress. I don't know how they get a, other than her age. I don't know how they get away with saying that uh, Addie is a supporting performance. No, it makes no sense. I'm glad you brought that up, Sam. She, uh, I, I read that she actually has the longest screen time of anybody nominated for a supporting actress. And you compare that with when Judy Dench was nominated for supporting actress for Shakespeare in Love. I think she was on screen for 12 minutes. 
Um, I mean, this movie is a little under an hour and a half, and Tatum O'Neill is in almost every shot. She has, I think it's like 63 or 65 minutes of, of screen time. So, yeah, I, I, it had to have been an age thing because there's no way. And Madeline Kahn herself said that. I'm the supporting actress. She's the she's the lead actress. But I guess they figured they couldn't give a kid the, the lead. Uh, the right. Yeah. Right. Um, are there other support? Are there other performances in this movie that jump out at you that you want to mention? Well, I've already mentioned I've already mentioned Randy Randy Quaid's uh, wrestling. Um, I can't remember that P.J. Johnson is that the name? Yes. Of the yep. Yeah, I think she's terrific as uh, and not an actress I know at all. And I thought she was really particularly fine in that. And I because I love the way that while Moses pursuing uh, Trixie, you have those two kind of connecting with, with each other. And she's very good. I, I, I think she, she's, she was a real highlight for me. Well, and you also get to see like Addie have her own caper in the middle of it. Like, like, yes. and it's, she, and it's the most intricate thing. And again, you don't see it explained. You, you just see it play out and you're constantly watching her. And it's, so it has this feeling of like a, a, a very comedic setup that she's, you know, pulling all these strings to do this. And then it's punctuated by like the heartbroken Mose. And what's interesting is it's like, he's not angry. He's heartbroken, yes. you know, and, and then when they're in the car and he's like, you know, whatever, whoever you become, don't become a person who would do that yeah. or something. And it's like, and I, and so I love that it, it, it's this sort of comedic, almost farce like buildup to get punctuated with, um, with a main character in real and real pain, even though the pain is just pointing out that he's been being conned this whole time. Well, also, and I, I don't want to put too much weight on this idea, but I think there's a kind of feminism at the heart of this film. I think the fact that that Addie is a young girl, and I think in particular in her con, that she's able to use sex to manipulate the situation. She's able to use the, the lust of the, of, of the clerk and, the, uh, and, and Trixie's uh, one, way of, one way of making a living. I mean, so it's, it, it's, it's not only that it's a young girl pull, it's not only that it's a child pulling the strings, the fact that it's a young girl pulling mm -hmm. the strings. I, I really like the empowerment of both her and Trixie's uh, uh, maid at the same time. Um, a couple of scenes that jumped out at me. I think the the one of the great Madeline Kahn scenes is when she goes up the hill to get yeah. Addie. Um, and uh, it's interesting because you see her trying a bunch of different um, different ways to win her over. And at the end, you know, it's it's just this kind of powerful moment of like, if you don't go, then I don't get nothing, and he don't get nothing, and you don't get nothing. And it's like, and she's even like, like I never last this long with somebody, and this is like, just basically, you can wait me out, and I will get discarded, is what she's saying, or or I will discard him or something. So it's like I'm not going to take him away from. It's it's just an interest. Yeah. It's a really interesting scene. Yeah, and 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 I like that scene for as much as what doesn't happen, and that is that. Um, there's never any physical violence because I'm thinking, you know, it's a little girl. They could just pick her up and carry her to the car. And, 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 and there's other moments where the conflict between him and her, there's, there's never any threat of somebody being slapped or hit or, I mean, th th so there's a sense in which they actually deal with each other ra rationally and, and, and as adults. And I, I really like that. I really like that restraint. Well, and it 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 provides uh, uh, this movie is full of great moments of kind of silent Tatum O'Neill acting as well, where she's sitting there and just a little a little change in her face shows the internal workings of her mind. Like when she finally gives Trixie just a little bit of a smile as she's about to stand up and go with her, or 
um, or you know things like that. Now it's interesting you talked about like conflict because one one of my also favorite scenes, which is uh, more of a comedic scene, is when they drive when they're it, uh, when Mose and and um, Addie are driving and they drive past the the folks who are fixing the tire and Addie's like we should give them money and Moses yeah. no and and they decide at that moment to break up. And um, he's like, get out the map and he's in find the next uh, station. And they start to do that and they can't help themselves. I'm like, oh, wow, that, that's a pretty good town. We could probably do this. And by <laughs> the end of it, they're plotting out the next like four months of their life and on all the things they're going to pull. And and that's just that's just a that's a, a, a very fun scene. But it's a, a beautifully played scene where it feels like there's real again a real divide between how they look at the world they're really upset with each other they're ready to be broken up but the thing that brings them back together is that they're a team yeah 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 do you have other things with this movie that uh, that you want to talk about well just briefly you know we mentioned some of the uh we mentioned the fact that Addie carries both the radio which is very important and to me that's that's another one of the kind of key elements of bringing the 1930s alive because radio was so important to people you know radio was their version of the of the internet really so i, I love the radio and, and and of course the cigar box and watching kind of the fortunes of the cigar box and and you think it's going to be kind of inviolable you know you think like this is something that's going to but and yet no the sheriff gets to kind of pull it apart and knock it all around and i just love the fact that the cigar box gets gradually kind of shabbier and shabbier uh and you think it's going to have this horrible effect on her because it's got these uh, these memories of her mother in there and yet she's got this kind of resilience that the cigar box is not a totem it, but it, it is a link to her to her past um well there's the even the great there's even the great moment where when mose pulls up in the new car and she looks in the cigar box and realizes oh he's gotten into this and he's taken yeah. from this yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the cigar, yeah, the cigar box is uh, is great, and and you already you all, all already mentioned the moments when she smokes. It's just it's such a it's such a classic movies trope, and of course these are not real cigarettes, so people don't need to worry about that. Uh, but I but I but I do love those those scenes of her kind of looking wise beyond her years. But I do have to say that um, somebody asked Bogdanovich what it was like to work with Tatum O'Neill. He said it was absolutely miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, even though she seemed in some ways to be kind of a natural actress, uh, she evidently had a difficult time, at least initially, learning her lines. Uh, there was a lot of genuine conflict between her and her father. And, of course, there's a whole story about how abusive he was as a, as a father. Um, and, uh, and, and the particular story I like best is, is in the carnival scene. Before they started shooting, she evidently did what any little girl would do at a carnival and that is what stuff she had popcorn and cotton candy by the time it was time to really sick to her stomach so they had to shoot so it's again it's just a reminder Sam that you know what you ultimately see what gets up on the screen is a very controlled version of reality compared to what's actually happening behind the scenes we should also mention I think uh, another scene that goes by quickly and you could you could easily not mention it but it's a really powerful moment is when um she's lying in bed and mose comes back this is earlier in the movie and he has a woman out in the hall and he's keeping her out mm-hmm. and then when mose goes to sleep and she this goes back to the cigar box she brings it into the bathroom and starts to look at pictures of yeah. her mother you know and she and, and she's clearly thinking and this is when she puts on the perfume or whatever and she is like thinking of herself as a child thinking of herself as a woman thinking of her relationship with um with mose and how that you know random woman in the hallway is a is 
is a kind of threat to her to her existence and then it's right after pretty soon after that that we get Trixie who is a real threat to her existence you know uh, and I and that scene is just it's 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 heartbreaking I think you know as she's looking at her looking at her mother looking at herself in the mirror and trying to sort of figure I mean this 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 uh story has all these questions about like you know M everybody's calling her a boy and she's like mm-hmm. and she is very tomboyish um but she's also like a woman too and thinking about that like, I, I found that stuff really um really interesting and pretty powerful and pretty wordless too yeah well, and, and robert Ro- yeah roger ebert said that she she would have made a great hawk film um yeah one of the yeah I, I i'm glad you pointed out that scene um sam for all the reasons you've mentioned and in addition to the fact that also one of the things we haven't said about the film is it does handle some i mean not severe shifts in tone but it manages to have poignancy it manages to have humor and it manages to have a little bit of uh suspense and terror and 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 i think that you know bogdanovich kind of shifts those gears very very adro- very adroitly you, you 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 believe the moments of pathos and and you also believe the moments of, of comedy absolutely one one final thing I have to say, and that is, uh, one 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 critic made a really interesting comment. This brings in another director we've talked about quite a bit, and said, "You can think about this film as a prequel to Preston Surges' The Lady Eve." Uh, I don't know if you've seen The Lady Eve or not, but it's uh, in that case you have a grown woman, Barbara Stanwyck, and her father Charles Coburn. Uh, there's no question they are father and daughter, um, but they're playing uh, the con game. They're card sharks, and. Uh, and it's, but then the action goes the opposite direction. She ultimately frees herself from the con game, whereas Tatum O'Neill embroils herself in the con game. And you could also argue that the whole 30s uh, depression era also reminds us not only, obviously, if it happened one night, but uh, Sullivan's travels uh, as, as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I loved this movie. I, um, I didn't, I didn't know what it was going to be about. I didn't know. Um, I didn't. I didn't even know tone wise what it was going to be. Uh, and I, this is something that was, was great. I watched it by myself, but this is one that I was talking with my wife about. And I said, we should really watch this. This is, you're going to like this one. I think this is uh this is, this is really great. So I, um, if somebody was interested in watching something else from Bogdanovich, what would, what would you recommend? I do the last picture show. Um, I, I didn't recommend it for this week, Sam, because as, as of last week, at least it wasn't available on either Amazon or, or, uh, or Netflix, but definitely last picture show. Uh, or if, uh, if you did enjoy some of our screwballs, uh, what's up doc is, uh, is, is really good as well. Fantastic. So what do you have for us for next week? Well, you know, we did Bogdanovich because he had died recently. And the other great Hollywood figure who died in the same week is Sidney Poitier. And, uh, um, you know, Poitier was a, was a great actor uh, who wasn't in a lot of great films, actually, uh, one, of, one of those situations. Um, but what I want to watch with Poitier is, um, I, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how well this film has aged. It's 1958 Defiant Ones uh, with Poitier uh, as, a, as a convict uh, on a southern uh, chain gang uh, who is uh, handcuffed to Tony Curtis. Uh, and they escape together. Uh, so it'll, it'll be, it's an interesting film in terms of what it reveals about social consciousness in the 50s. And it's one of the early Stanley Kramer films. Uh, Kramer is another one of those sort of American uh, auteurs that we haven't uh, watched any of his films yet. So that's uh, 1958 Defiant Ones. It just became available on Amazon uh, Prime. 
Oh, fantastic. I'm very excited to uh, to watch this. Well, Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film. I'm definitely going to go watch Last Picture Show. I, I'm... I, I love visual, like vi- I love visual filmmakers, and this one is so consciously like somebody who's really thinking about what is up on the the stage or what is up on the screen, um, kind of artistically. And so I really want to see uh, more from him. So thank you so much for recommending this. That's all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about the Defiant Ones in the video store.